So we continue um, <clears throat> walking through um, Christology as we look at the person and work of Christ. Um, so today we, we start on the subject of the atonement. So this will be part one of the atonement, and then next week, uh, Pastor Rick will continue in part two of the atonement. So that's where we are, and that's where we're going. This wasp just startled me. Um, do I kill it? Do I let it live? I don't know. Um, we subdue and dominate. All right, um, so the atonement. Can you guys hear me? Am I clear? Am, am I, is my voice loud enough over the AC system? Yeah? Okay. So a few years back, um, my, my wife and I were visiting old friends in the Tampa area, um, and this couple had a toddler, and like all parents um, with toddlers or young children, he had moments where he had to discipline or correct his child's uh, behavior. Um, at one point, I remember my friend saying something to, to the effect of, if you don't stop doing that, you're going to get the pow-pow. You're going to get the pow-pow. This, of course, was another way of saying spanking. Um, later that evening, the adults were talking about uh, the Bible, and they were sharing ways that uh, my friends were sharing ways that they purposed to uh, communicate the gospel to their children. And my friend explained, when trying to get them to understand the concept of the sacrifice of Christ, I tell them that Jesus took the pow-pow for believers. So it sounds funny, but... The idea my friend was trying to communicate to his toddler um, was that it's, it's, it's close to the core of what we'll be talking about today in uh, the gospel and the atonement specifically, the atonement of Christ. So now we understand that the atonement is more than just uh, the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ. But before we go on to define the atonement and to talk about different aspects of the atonement, which we will today, let me ask uh, you guys, without looking at your notes, um, how would you, in a few words, explain or communicate or define the atonement for someone? If they ask you, well, what is the atonement? You're this Christian, you have this faith, you believe in this Bible that you say talks about the atonement. What is that? How would you explain that to them or define it for them? class should be great then. <laughs> I would say it's payment for sin. Okay. In the Old Testament, there was the animal that was like chosen and, and set out in the world. It was like okay. um, the sin is here in its presence and then you're taking the sin away from the guilty party. Okay. Okay. Party paying for or atoning for another party's sin. Okay. We will walk them through the the Old Testament sacrificial system, in a sense, okay? Short answer. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts? Pito? God establishes a law, his law. Everyone has broken it. Someone needs to pay that penalty that price. All right. God establishes his law. Everyone has broken it, and, and someone needs to pay the penalty and the price for breaking his law. Pito shared. Good stuff. Anything else you guys would add to that or change about it? Okay. 
Okay, so you would emphasize to that person who's asking the redemption now, uh, through the blood of Christ, so something uh, dying in the place of, of another, right? That's huge in the atonement, which we'll talk about. So we'll, we'll touch on all of those today. The Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, which is a foreshadowing pointer, um, redemption, um, and this sort of uh, penal substitution, something taking the place of, of another in the atonement. So we won't use the terminology of the pow-pow, but we'll, we'll get to the core of uh, that, that idea. So first, uh, the cause of the atonement. And your, your note sheets, I'm, I'm, I try to follow that as closely as I can. I have a little more here, but you can sort of follow my line of thinking here on your note sheet. First, the cause of the atonement. The love of God is a cause of the atonement, a cause for the atonement. Um, John 3.16, which we all probably know by heart. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whoever or whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, some have taken, uh, mistakenly, the scripture to mean that all people will be saved. Some say that um, it is through the atonement that Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, that all will ultimately be reconciled to God. Others say that all will go to heaven sooner or later. Whether or not they have trusted in or rejected Jesus as Savior during their lifetime, this universal redemption will be realized in the future where God will bring all people to repentance, some say. This repentance can happen while a person lives or after he has died and lived again in the millennium, as uh, some uh, Christian universalists would claim, um, or some future state they would come to redemption. So on, on the surface of this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. On the, uh, a surface reading of this can lead um, someone maybe easily to think that, um, well, maybe salvation is universal. Maybe everyone will be saved. But we have to remember here um, context. So this passage has a context. Uh, John has a context. Uh, his writings on the context. Right? The New Testament is in a context. Everything has a, has a context. And the context here, the theme of John is that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Son of God. So the word John uses here, world, um, or cosmos, um, it's, it's world, it's created order, it's the inhabitants of the earth. And in John 3.16, he's writing something amazing. And so in the Old Testament and in other Jewish writings um, in the Old Testament, it was commonly understood of God to speak of his love or salvation as exclusively for Israel alone. Um, so here John is writing, God so loved the world. This is amazing. This is this is sort of counter the common understanding. So God's love isn't solely for, for Israel. Israel. It isn't solely for the, the, the Jewish person um, of this ethnic uh, background. For God so loved the world that he made it possible for whosoever or whoever believes in Christ, uh, not the Jewish person only, to have eternal life. So... John, he's, he's opening this up, and you see that all through, through John. He's, he's communicating Jesus is uh, he's the Lamb of God. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the sent one, and you see traces of this in the Old Testament. It isn't, it isn't new. 
but John is bringing it out here. So in this, for God so loved the world, he's doing something specific and saying, okay, it's outside of just those who are of the Jewish heritage or background or lineage. Um, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. And we sort of see that work itself out um, after the atonement and the working of Christ continue through uh, the New Testament and Acts and the church and the epistles as they go out. So that's what's being communicated here. It, it's not universalism. It's not everyone um, will be saved. And again, that's, it, that, that we, we can grapple with that, and, and we ought to, but we have to let the scriptures inform our thinking about this. Right? So back to the main point here. The love of God was the cause for the atonement. We also see that the justice of God was a cause for the atonement. <clears throat> the justice of God was a cause for the atonement. Let me have someone read uh, Romans 3, 25 to 26. So whoever gets there, just read it nice and loud for us. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay. So how is God just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. How is he just and justifier? Um, so God is just in that he's a just judge. Um, by, God's, by, 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 by virtue of his holiness, he can't overlook sin. Um, so he's just, he's a just judge. Exodus 34, 5 to 7 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses, and claimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keep, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. A just judge has to deal with sin. Right? He will by no means clear the guilty. Even on an earthly level, when we, and I use this sort of scenario when I'm sharing the gospel with people to help them understand the, the justice of God and the holiness of God. If there is a toddler playing in, in the streets and someone has stolen a car, they're under the influence, uh, their license are, has already been revoked, so they're driving, they've already broken several laws, um, they're doing more than the speed limit has uh, given. They're running lights, running stop signs. If they hit this toddler, right, he goes to court. So he's already broken the law. The law has been set in place. He's broken it. He's in court now, right? So he's here. The family of the, the, the little girl is there. And they're saying, do justice. Fulfill what you ought to be doing. Put him under the prison. They want justice for their little girl, right? That judge turns to this guy and says, hey, you feel bad about what you've done? Yes, sir, absolutely. I'll never do it again. Okay. Are you sure you feel bad? Yes. Okay, let him go. They un un uncuff him. He walks out of the courtroom. That family yells out, that's unjust, right? So they expect a good judge to carry out what he ought to be doing as a just judge. We would yell, that's unjust, that's injustice. 
even how much more God of the heavens and the earth to carry out just judgment. He can't just overlook sin. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be just. But God is just. He's a holy God and he cannot overlook sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. If God clears the guilty apart from a substitutionary atonement, then he's not God because he's not holy and he's not just, right? How is God justifier? How is God justifier? In the Greek, the word here can uh, mean to declare, to pronounce one to be just, righteous, um, or such as one ought to be. To declare, to pronounce one to be just or righteous. God, the offended party, also provides the means by which one is justified and declared righteous. Well, how? Well, let's let God answer that for himself. In Romans chapter 3. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to start at verse 19. We're going to read through this. Um, let the Bible clarify for us how God is just and justifier. Romans 3, starting at verse 19. <clears throat> it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, wrath-bearing substitute, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. <clears throat> this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <clears throat> so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what's clear here, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Beginning of 21 there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So standing under the, uh, the, the law of God, all of us are condemned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, how is God justified? He provides now a means, justification, by which one can be justified apart from trying to keep the law, namely Christ. Christ comes and keeps the law perfectly in the place of the one who has faith in him. He fulfills all righteousness, which we'll talk about in a sec. So righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. So the atonement proves that no one will go unpunished. That's, that, that's a huge point here. Uh, as Pito said earlier, there's a law. All of us have broken it. God has manifested righteousness apart from the law. Christ, who's been perfect in keeping the law. And he was crushed, which shows that Every sin ever committed will be dealt with. 
every sin ever committed will be dealt with. Sins against the bride of Christ and sin against um, the Christian individually. And even outside of this, every sin will be dealt with. If God crushes his sinless son for sin, it gives us a great, it should have, there should be fear associated with that, but also great confidence for the Christian now, even in this life, that God will deal with every sin. No sin will go unpunished. So God is, again, both just and justifier of the one who has faith in him. Any thoughts on that before we jump down to the necessity of the atonement? Okay. So the necessity of the atonement. So again, we're walking through Christology and today dealing with part one of the atonement of Christ. Right? So the necessity of the atonement. So was the atonement absolutely necessary? Um, if we understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men, we must come to the conclusion that God has to punish sin in order for holy justice to be upheld. So the atonement was necessary <clears throat> if God is to save sinners. All right, let me have someone go to Matthew 26, 39. Someone else, the Luke 24 passage. Someone else, the Romans 3 passage. Someone else, the Hebrews 2 passage. And I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. All right, so who has the Matthew Matthew 26 passage. <clears throat> Go ahead. Thanks, Will. <clears throat> verse, verse the will of God, which we see in Isaiah, it was the will of God to crush him. And we see that here as well. Um, Luke, Luke 24. One second. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. <clears throat> Ought not that Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Another passage that shows us clearly that Christ ought to suffer these things. It's been, it's been laid out from eternity past, if we can use that term, that Christ must suffer um, in order for uh, sinners to be declared righteous. And then the Romans 3.26. <clears throat> We just walked through that. Christ, uh, uh, God is just and justifier. Um, just in that a just judge must punish sin and justifier, and that he provides the means for one to be righteous in crushing his son. And then Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 17.
I'll go ahead and read Hebrews 2.17. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a, sorry, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And then Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, the necessity of the atonement. Christ had to die. And Hebrews 9.13 comes to mind here when I think about this. Um, It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for for the purification of sins... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the Old Testament, this is a reference to, and someone said this earlier, the Old Testament sacrificial system. A priest was set in place. He would go and make an atonement for the people. That's that's what he's pointing to here, the the author of Hebrews. The Old Testament sacrificial system was set in place as a foreshadow and pointer to its fulfillment. Christ as the final sacrifice and lamb of God. You guys remember John, when Christ comes on the scene, John, um, John the Baptist, he says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John's exclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God directly addresses our biggest problem and our greatest need. Something to die in our place, right? This is consistent with all of Scripture. That's why Christ is the Lamb of God, the final offering, the final substitute to die in the place of sinners. So question for you. We understand the atonement is absolutely necessary. Hope I've somewhat made that clear here. Um, how does this differ from other religions and worldviews? The Christian holds that, well, no, something has to die because you've broken the law of God. How does that differ from other religions or other worldviews? <clears throat> Why is that even important? Yeah. Right. That's a great, great way to explain it. Usually it's uh, someone trying to pacify God's anger by doing things, doing good things. And in Christianity, it's not us necessarily coming to God, but God condescending to us. Um, That's a great way to put it. Any other thoughts on that? God is the, uh, the active uh, party in, in salvation and redemption. Yeah. Anything else as it contrasts other worldviews and religions? <clears throat> right. Right. 
Yeah. Right. And that was kind of like this shift where he was like, I've never heard that right. before. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, they don't have a shirt, the, the Quran doesn't teach assurance. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. Which is just crazy. The, the the humility of Christ and God's again, God being the active party in men's salvation. Now we're not. That, that, that that's not to say that. Uh, Christians are um, bystanders in their sanctification. They, they, they don't just, we're not saved and we sort of live how we want to live, but we're saying that in our, our salvation is uh, God alone, God saving, he's raising men from their spiritual deadness. Um, and he does that by his son and crushing him on the cross by the spirit. And it stands contrary to every other religious system. There is this, this reaching, this groping for Groping for God, and it just reminds me of um, the Old Testament, these, these false prophets cutting themselves to try and um, evoke the, you know, the presence of this, this deity. Um, and it's, it's vain. And <laughs> the same thing happens today in different ways. We want to find every other way to get to God apart from his prescribed means, and that is his son. And so we, we, we ought to, to rest there. Jonathan Edwards says on this point, the necessity of the death and atonement of Christ sufficiently appears by the bare event of his death. If his death were not necessary, he died in vain. This is a great point. But we cannot suppose that either, that, that either be, be by his father, sorry, we cannot suppose that either he or his father would have cons consented to his death had it not been absolutely necessary. Even a man of common wisdom and goodness would not consent either to his own death or that of his son, but in a case of necessity and in order to uh, some important and valuable end. Much less can we suppose that either Christ Jesus, the son, would have consented to his own death or that his infinitely wise and good father would have consented to the death of his only begotten and dearly beloved son, whom his soul was well pleased, or, I'm sorry, and who was full of grace and truth, the brightness of his own glory, and the express image of his person, the chiefest among 10,000, and altogether lovely, if, 
there had not been the most urgent necessity. That's a great way to sum up the, the necessity of Christ's atonement. Um, it is needful, it is necessary that the Christ uh, should suffer many things and afterward die and be received into glory. All right. All right, so let's transition to the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement. So Christ's obedience for us, sometimes called his active obedience. Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to God as our representative. When I was teaching in um, the kids' Sunday school class, I was trying to explain the active and passive obedience of Christ. And so I had like a chair, and I said, well, in Christ's active obedience, he comes and he sits in the chair and does uh, the good that you didn't do. And his passive obedience, if the chair is sinful, when we came and sat in the chair, he walked past the chair and he didn't do the sin that we did. And they all looked at me and they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> so I'm gonna try and explain this a little better here, hopefully. All right, so Christ's active and passive obedience. Um, again, just a litany of scriptures we're gonna take a look at here. So first, uh, Matthew 3.15. So if you want it, just you can call out and go to it. Matthew 3.15. I can start designating readers. Yeah. I don't mind doing that. <laughs> Amen. And then John 8.29. Thank you. And then someone go to 1 Corinthians 1.30 and then someone else Philippians 3.9 and I'll read Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. <clears throat> one in place of another. And then 1 Corinthians 1.30. He has become our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Christ is our righteousness, and this is achieved through his active and passive obedience. And then Philippians 3.9. Thank you. I love that passage. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It just so cuts at the heart of every human being tried to attain righteousness apart from Christ. We, we cannot attain a righteousness. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. And we don't even see, we, we acknowledge our own uh, unworthiness but we don't even see ourselves as wicked as we ought to see ourselves. Um, the Bible paints a very clear and vivid picture of man's uh, sinfulness before God and what it is before the eyes of God. Even our good works are filthy rags. Titus says we're not saved through even our good works, but Christ was put forth as uh, salvation for us. 
So the death of Christ was satisfactory because of the life of Christ, because of Christ's active obedience. Every step Christ took, every word Christ spoke was in complete and utter obedience to the Father as was, and was pleasing to him. Every step Christ took was to earn righteousness for you that you could never earn for yourself. Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience could be counted to us. Sometimes this is called Christ's active obedience, while his suffering and dying for our sins is called his passive obedience. Paul says his goal is Paul says his goal is that he may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own based on the law, but that which in that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is not just moral neutrality that Paul knows he needs from Christ, that is a clean slate of sins forgiven, but a positive moral righteousness. You see what he's saying there? A clean slate is not enough. We need something more. We need righteousness before God to enter into God's holy heaven and to be accepted by him through Christ. I'll read that again. It is not just moral neutrality that Paul knows he needs from Christ. That is a clean slate and sins forgiven, but a positive moral righteousness. We need someone to live the life that we can't live. <clears throat> And he knows, that, he knows that that cannot come from himself, but must come through faith in Christ. Similarly, Paul says that Christ has been made our righteousness, as we just read. And he quite explicitly says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, uh, righteous, the, the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's Wayne Grudem, um, a great explanation of that. <clears throat> So again, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion or worldview. Some say look within, sort of, sort of get in touch with your purer, more pure self and allow that you to live. Uh, and others say look without, get in touch with the essence of the universe. Uh, but we say, no, look to Christ. The answer is not in you. The answer is not in the world around you. The answer is in a propitiation, a wrath-bearing substitute that was necessary for you to be right before a holy God. <clears throat> again, Christ. So, again, question for you. Why did Christ have to fulfill all righteousness? Why couldn't he be 99.99% righteous or even fulfill 75% of God's righteous requirement of the law? Why does it matter that he had to fulfill all righteousness? <clears throat> Isn't that a small percentage that he wasn't being sinful, so he would not do it fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone want to add to that? The holiness of God. Yeah. God is a 99% holier, 75%. Well said. <laughs> God isn't 99% holy or 75% holy. Yeah, absolutely.
Right. He showed him faithfulness to God, and because of that, before he died, God brought him up on a mountain and showed him all this land and said, this isn't for you because you showed I'm faithful. Mm. Like, because of that. Right, right. You a little bit, just, yeah. Right, which just, just further illuminates God, God's holiness, how serious he takes sin. Any other thoughts on that? <clears throat> yeah, for us, our, um, what's expected of us as far as God's laws right. is 100% obedient. So uh, that's what we need to obtain righteousness is perfect obedience. And if Christ didn't have perfect obedience himself, Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So he was God would fall short of his own holy standard if he accepted anything less than 100% righteousness. Absolutely. <clears throat> All right. Let's talk about uh, Christ's passive obedience. So that was his active obedience. Now his passive obedience. Right. He walks by the chair of your sin and doesn't sit, as explained to the kiddos. All right, so Jesus' life was that of much suffering, um, even in his passive obedience. <clears throat> I'm going to read Matthew 4, um, 1 to 11, and you guys feel free to go there or you can just listen. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. <clears throat> Matthew 4, 1 to 11. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, I'm sorry, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. <clears throat> Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands, and, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So even so in this passage, we see we often we can read over this and sort of have a cavalier feeling about it, but Christ wasn't just haphazardly walking through these various temptations with Satan. This was intense warfare. Uh, the end of this passage uh, says that these angels came and were ministering to him. I mean, this warfare so much so that angels were coming to minister to him. This word ministering in the Greek is similar to the word from which we get deacon, um, diakoneo, uh, and it means that they were serving him. Um, what that looked like exactly, we don't know. But you definitely get a sense that um, it was no walk in the park for Jesus under this temptation of the evil one. Again, it was serious, intense, concentrated spiritual warfare. 
with Satan himself. Now, can we say, um, well, being that Jesus was God, he wasn't actually tempted. Um, what's wrong with having this type of understanding of Jesus' sufferings? Well, he was God, so it wasn't really a temptation because he's God. Sure. Right. <clears throat> Great point. So we had to be like sin had to be like accessible <clears throat> okay. to him okay. if he was gonna be like us in that regard. Right. Where sin was accessible to Adam and Eve and they chose it and he didn't. That's what's different. He didn't sit in the chair. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a great great explanation. You I wanna add anything to that? says that so plainly, which we're actually going there. The passage you're probably looking for. Um, I'm gonna go, we're going to go to Hebrews 5, 8, and then we'll look at another passage a little later. But um, I'm going to read Hebrews 5, 8 and, and Hebrews 2 to look at this suffering of Christ that was indeed a suffering, a real suffering. <laughs> Hebrews 5, 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Christ learned obedience as Christ. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, Jesus, through the incarnation, experiences a sensation or impression of suffering. Uh, that's what this word in the Greek means, is he learned his, his suffering, that phrase. Um, he experienced a sensation and or impression of suffering. Um, Hebrews 2.14 says... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, you were getting at this, Lucy, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, again, a fancy word for wrath-bearing substitute, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for, by he, for, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We cannot say that just because Jesus was God, that was uh, the mere means by which he was able to endure um, suffering. And if, if we even want to call it suffering, we can't gloss over the fact that the Bible says that Jesus suffered and was tempted. Um, you make a great point, Ryan, and that it, it, it had to be a true and real suffering. Um, it had to be something that the incarnate, God incarnate, puts on human flesh and endures under 
um, in, in the sufferings of those whom he came to save. Right? So it's, 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 a, it's a reality there. Um, let me have someone read Isaiah 53, 3 to 5. I think that also um, adds to our point here. Isaiah 53, 3 to 5. Thank you. <clears throat> so the father in, in, in the suffering um, on the cross specifically turns his face away from his son as he bears the punishment for our sin in order that he would never have to turn his face away from us. This is part of the sufferings of Christ. Christ was forsaken on the cross so that we would never have to be. Right. So whether or not Isaiah actually saw a vision of the crucifixion itself, uh, we do know that Isaiah 53 gives us the inspired, inerrant, interpretive grid through which to view Jesus' life and death. It can be easy to focus on the physical pain and disgrace Christ's experience at the hand of lawless men, but we dare not miss what was going on behind the scenes. While human agents were killing an innocent man, God was pouring out his wrath on the same man at the same time, his incarnate son. He was crushing Jesus for our iniquities. Indeed, he was laying on Christ the iniquity of us all. God was cutting him off out of, he was cutting him off out of the land of the living, sending Jesus into exile where he hung on the cross so that his soul would make an offering for guilt and satisfy the Lord's just demands. Again, God just and justified. The father was offering up his son as a true sacrifice, a substitute to endure what we deserve so that we might enjoy what Christ alone deserves, eternal life. So in bearing this wrath, Jesus suffered so that his people would not have to. Jesus suffered so that his people would not have to. Again, the passive and active obedience of Christ. The passive and active obedience of Christ. So, oh, I'm running out of time here. All right. So a few points before, we, uh, before I close out here. Christ absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, and he did it by his sufferings. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ bore our sins and purchased our forgiveness, and he did it by his sufferings. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in one body, one body on the tree, and in Isaiah 53.5, which we just read. Christ provided a perfect righteousness for us that becomes ours in him, and he did it through our sufferings. Philippians 2, 7 to 8, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ defeated death, and he did it by his sufferings. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, which we just read, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, 
the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ disarmed Satan, and he did it through suffering. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. The record of death that stands against us, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ purchased perfect final healing for all his people, and he did it through suffering. Isaiah 53, 5, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Through his crucifixion we are healed, right? <clears throat> Christ will bring us finally to God, and he will do it by his suffering. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. All right, so Christ's sufferings culminate in the, on the pain of the cross. It's a very real suffering. It's a very real um, weight of sin that Christ takes, a God turning, Father turning his face away from his son, the suffering under that, and the punishment of physical pain um, that we see in the sufferings of Christ. And again, done as a means by which men can be made right before a holy God in the atonement of Christ. Um, we had a little more to share here, but we are out of time. Um, but I hope that, again, just sharpens our lens of Christ and stirs our hearts to reflect on the gospel. This is what men need. This is what we need to be encouraged with, with daily, the gospel. This is what we ought to proclaim as we go out. We don't go out and tell people, well, you know, you're a little bad. You've got some issues. You know, God, you know, he's, he's, he may be angry. He may not. No, we go with the message of the Bible. Um, you have sinned against a holy God who demands justice by virtue of his righteousness and holiness. The sin must be paid for. My sin must be paid for. Your sin must be paid for. But God just as he is just, he's justifier, and he's provided that means, and it is through Christ. And that's the message of the gospel that we give to a dying world and that we encourage each other with when we are tempted to trust in our own righteousness as if Christ's righteousness was not enough. Um, so with that, let me go ahead and pray. We're a little bit over.